This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On October 25th, the Washington Post hosted political leaders and analysts for a special 2018 midterm election preview event. Led by the Washington Post reporting team of Dan Balls, Paul Kane, and Karen Tumulty, the discussions reveal what's at stake for the candidates and the country on Election Day and the consequences for 2020 and beyond. In this segment, reporters and political analysts go in-depth on the issues driving the electorate this midterm season. They discuss just how important issues such as immigration, health care, and the economy are to likely voters. Let's listen. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Paul Kane, Senior Congressional Correspondent for The Washington Post. Pleased to be here with my colleague Sung Min Kim. Uh, we have Candace Owens, who is the Communications Director for Turning Point USA, a nonprofit group that promotes conservative policies like free markets and limited government. And someone who needs no introduction, the great <laughs> Amy Walder, National Editor of the Cook Political Report. Amy, let's get started. I want to know, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. Just try to explain <laughs> the lay of the land yes. of what has been going on. Uh, it really seemed like six weeks ago, we all just sort of thought, okay, the Democratic wave is building. You know, they're going to win a huge amount of House seats and, you know, stay even or maybe pick up a seat or two right. in the Senate. Uh, it feels like something dispersed that wave. Maybe it's just a smaller wave. Maybe it's a tornado. Choose your metaphor, people. Um, give us the lay of the land. You know, Paul, I think the best way to think about where we are um, today is that we're having elections in two different Americas. Yeah. There's an America where Trump's really popular, and a lot of those states are states where the Senate battleground is taking place, right? The control of the Senate runs through places like Indiana and Missouri and North Dakota and West Virginia. All of those, of course, are held by Democrats, so they have to hold all, onto all of those. And even the places where they need to pick up seats, right, if they want to um, either gain or, in this case, I think the best case scenario is for Republicans not to, I mean, for Democrats not to lose seats. They have to win in places like Tennessee and Texas, also where the president's uh, popular. And then that's why, so that's the Senate map, where the president's popular. Where the president's unpopular is in suburban America, especially among white college-educated women. And that's where the House map, uh, that's where battle for control of the House goes through a lot of those districts, suburban Chicago, suburban Denver, suburban Dallas, northern Virginia. And so it feels more and more like we're going to end up with an election night that everybody gets something they want. It's like a <laughs> soccer game. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody wins, right? But where this co the country remains as polarized and divided today as it was the day after the 2016 election, where there's going to be a big chunk of Americans who say, we like where the country's going, we like the president, we're going to support him and they will have their victories and a whole part of the country that says we don't like the president, we don't like what he stands for, and those victories will um, take place in the House. You could have a, a, so you have a House that's blue and a Senate that gets 
maybe a little more red or at least stays red and we're back kind of where we started. Uh, her most recent column, uh, the headline in uh, cookpolitical.com was same as it ever was yeah. uh, for Talking Heads fans. You know, on, you that can, was a great album. Do you want to sing? No. Sure? Yes. <laughs> but I like that album. All right. Um, also, we will take questions on Twitter. If you guys want to tweet at us, we will, uh, there are great people behind the stage here who will send me those questions. Um, let's see. Uh, all right. So, Candace, what is at stake for Donald J. Trump and his administration in this midterm? How important is it for him and his presidency going forward to 2020? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Republicans have to have to maintain control. Otherwise, I think we're going to see uh, the left, which has increasingly just done things to obstruct this administration. They're going to be calling for impeachment. Um, and I think in order for him to push through his agenda, we have to maintain control. And I'm, I th I'm largely optimistic about that and agree with your assessment that I think it's actually spot on. What I'm, I'm particularly paying attention to is um, what the response will be to the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's probably the most interesting tidbit for me. When you asked the question, how did we start at a, what you guys saw as a blue wave and ended up at more what was looking like it could be a, a blue puddle, um, I think a lot of it had to do with people, at least that I know in my family, I come from a family full of moderate Democrats who were totally pushed away and turned off by that. Um, I think it hit a nerve um, for some people and it grew a little too theatrical and too emotional. And I think that people, um, most people uh, would agree that due process is necessary. And I think it was, it was a very scary take for some people to imagine a world um, where just based off of allegations, a person's son, father, husband's life could be ruined. So I think were, that we're seeing um, a lot of residual effect from that, from that period. Were, were your friends, your family, were they more impacted by what happened in the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing room and the overall allegations of how that was handled? Or were they more impacted by seeing the protesters outside banging on the Supreme Court door? Was I it? I think both. So, and, and my family, we have this group chat going. They make fun of me all the time, you know, <laughs> obviously. I'm a super conservative, and I started as a liberal. Um, I think, first and foremost, obviously, I come from an African-American family. Um, and my grandfather grew up in the segregated South. And for them to think of a world where, where women could just be believed and their allegations would just audit, you know, their believed survivor shirts, they grew up in the civil rights era. That ended up in a lot of my ancestors being lynched. Mm -hmm. um, so that, I think, was something that made them go, this is jarring and this is something that I don't want any part of. Um, but it, it did sort of create a picture when you're seeing people outside and they're angry and they're going violent and they're banging on the door. That's certainly not the way this country should be run. The way that you respond to something um, is at the polls. Uh, so I have a much more moderate to conservative family now because of that. So hmm. I'm wondering, I, I certainly uh, can't speculate. Uh, but I'm wondering if that's true of a lot of people that were more moderate Democrats, if they felt more inclined to walk away from the sort of the hysteria that we're starting to see. Uh, all right, you recent, Sung Min, you recently wrote a piece about uh, what Democrats want to do in terms of oversight, investigations, if they get those gavels through the majority. Walk us through that. Tell us what, what the real impact could be for the Trump administration with the Democratic majority. 
Well, the list of the things that they want to investigate is very, very long. Um, <laughs> in reporting out the story, you can kind of get hints and clues as to what House Democrats would investigate by looking through all the letters that the ranking members of the respective committees had sent to the Trump White House, to the administration, or to Trump-related entities such as the Trump Organization, and seeing what kind of information they requested. Um, the Oversight Committee alone has more than 60 requests for information that they say had, that have gone unanswered. And if you look at all the committees, they all have each of their little slice of the oversight, oversight pie. So you can see that even the House Veterans Affairs Committee, which is one of the smaller committees on Capitol Hill, they are eager to investigate, for example, the reported, um, quote, shadow VA that's being run at Mar-a-Lago, according to ProPublica's reporting. They're eager to investigate that. Um, you know, for example, the House Armed Services Committee has broad latitude to investigate anything related to the military, where it's, whether it's military deaths or, um, for example, there was reporting last year, earlier this year, <laughs> my time frame is getting warped, but yes. earlier this We're year. In dog um, years. It's been 26 this, years since 2016. So. Earlier this year about potentially housing migrant children on mili military bases. So obviously that's part of their jurisdiction. Um, a lot of the, so uh, we see the same themes. Uh, even with those, we see a lot of the same themes. A lot um, revolve around the administration's uh, immigration policy. Obviously, questions about potential conflicts of interest with his family and his business interests. So the implications for the administration is very large. If particularly the House changes hands, because you do get gavels, you do get subpoena power. The gravity, the center of gravity, shifts a little bit more towards Capitol Hill, more towards that end of Pennsylvania Avenue rather than the power being kind of concentrated at the White House as it is right now. Um, but the other kind of interesting detail that we picked up in um, our reporting of that piece is that even as hungry and eager as Democrats seem right now, I mean, they feel they've been stifled by this administration for nearly two years. They're being cautioned and advised already at this point, and they haven't even won the majority, that don't be too eager with your investigations, don't be too eager with your subpoena power. And I had some interesting conversations with Henry Waxman, who uh, was the last uh, Democratic leader to really lead oversight of a opposing an administration after the uh, the Dems took back power in 2006, and he's he's been informally advising uh, House Democratic leadership aides, he's been talking with, um, just kind of informally giving his advice and says, look, Oversight is only effective if it has credibility, and it can't look partisan. And you know, one of his former aides talked to us about the difference between um, one of his predecessors, Dan Burton, issuing literally more than a thousand subpoenas versus Waxman's ten. Um, so they are being advised already to be kind of judicious and strategic. But once you get the gavels, once you get the subpoenas, and just the hunger spills over, I mean, who knows how strategic they could end up yep. being. Yeah. Uh, a question for both of you. Candace first, Amy second. What will Trump consider a win on November 7th? Does he, <laughs> if he wakes up and he's got two more Republican senators, does, does he declare victory regardless of what happens in the House? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not What's sure. the first tweet going to be? <laughs> exactly. What is, what is the first That's tweet going to be? That's what they all want to know. Um, I, I don't. I, I genuinely don't, don't know. know. Um, obviously, as long as we don't lose power to the left, I think he will consider it a win because it means that he can go forward and we don't have to get caught up in this bureaucratic mess, um, which I think we all know is coming if, if they mm -hmm. do get power. What's a win um, for Trump? Everything. 
And there's no losing. <laughs> Lose? You sick of winning yet? It's going to be somebody else's fault. If, it's, if the house goes, it's because they didn't follow his lead. If this, they lose the Senate seats, it's because they didn't um, appreciate him mm -hmm. and didn't bring him into the district enough or didn't uh, include him enough in, in their campaigns. But, uh, you know, again, in a world where, we, where every day is brand new, um, mm -hmm with the, the the way that the president operates. I, I fully expect that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the election, post-election. You know, mm -hmm. in normal years, you have a big midterm year. We spend two days digging through it. The cables go wall to wall for two or three days. Then the president comes out, makes some sort of, usually when it's a bad year, they have to come out. And Thumping. Shellacking. They have to do this whole sort of like, you know, public... Mea culpa. Yes, almost. about, or it's kind of mea culpa, but it's also like, let me explain why it really wasn't my fault, but it kind of was, but it's really not. <laughs> and, you know, you did this whole song and dance about it. But I just kind of believe that we're going to go directly into something else. The president's okay. going to be like, all right, that happened, so guess what? I'm now going to do this. Now we're going to, we're going to do, you know, the wall in, um, in lame duck. Or now certain people of the administration may be leaving. Mm -hmm. Some of them voluntarily, some not. Right? It's a good day. Why not tell everybody that day? Midterm mid night, 2006, as uh, was it a thumping? Is that what? That was the thumping. That was the thumping. Um, <laughs> That's very George they Bush. I believe uh, the White House announced, the Bush White House announced, Donald Rumsfeld, Rumsfeld. Yep. was leaving right. that night. Yep. Um, Candace. Which every Republican had said, you know, maybe you should have done that, yeah. I don't know, before we lost. <laughs> yes. That would have been a good, good idea. Rick Santorum lost the Senate race by 19 points and was so bitter that they didn't, they didn't fire Brumsfeld until then that he voted uh, against Bob Gates for Secretary of Defense. Um, so what has this midterm, this whole process from the primary to now, I know we still haven't got the general election. What has it taught us about the Republican Party? Um, I actually think that the Republican Party is at long last coming together um, and they're fighting. I think obviously in the beginning... Coming together around Trump? Yes, um, for sure. They're coming together around Trump. I think in the beginning there was a lot of apprehension. Uh, it, he's a president that we've, this sort of president that we've never seen before in this country. Um, and I think that because of that there was some valid concern and apprehension in the beginning. Um, but that sort of shifted because he's been effective and he's actually gotten the job done. And now we're talking about differences stylistically. You'll hear amongst people, oh, I wish he wouldn't tweet. And I always counter that with tweeting is why he, he's in the White House. I mean, he understood mm. how to play it an entirely different game. He really is the social, the social media president. He sort of went around the press um, to get out the story directly to the people that were following him. Um, so I'm actually seeing people rally him, and I sp specifically saw this and was so impressed with the Brett Kavanaugh hearing. Typically, you know, as soon as they came up with an allegation, I think any other president would have said, okay, we're dismissing this nominee and we're going to have somebody else. And he fought, and, and he stood by them. And then we saw people like Lindsey Graham, who, who was not traditionally behind this president, and he's, boy, you guys want power, and, <laughs> and I hope you never get it. And then, and, and, and we saw something here where it seems like they're, they're finally understanding what the stakes are. Um, and, and really, forgive me, for, for obviously we, we have a diverse crowd here, but I, I think the left, and I separate the left from liberals, um, you know, I have a family full of liberals, the left is fighting with extremely dirty tactics and they want to obstruct this, obstruct this presidency at any regard and I think the Republican Party is waking up to that um, and I think that they are, they are standing behind this president and that's something that is, makes me really happy to see. Let's talk about the Senate. Sungmin, looking ahead in January, 
um, you have John McCain will not be there. You know, we we lost him in August. Uh, Bob Corker gone. Those are two chairmen of really powerful committees: for, uh, Foreign Services, uh, Foreign Relations, and Senate Armed Services. Jeff Flake is gone. How much different is the Senate going to be without some of those leading voices? I mean, we're pretty much left with Ben Sass in that crowd of folks. Lindsey Graham might be the judiciary chairman. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a very different Senate. And for argument purposes, let's assume that Republicans retain yeah. control, so they'll all be the chairs. I mean, look at the current, I mean, if you look at the chairman of this, those two powerful committees for most of the Senate, you know, S Senator John McCain at Armed Services and Corker at Foreign Relations, I mean, not only were they more independent figures who weren't afraid to speak out against the president's actions or his rhetoric, but they also had that extra credibility of holding the chairmanship. Um, so I think a lot of times when Re Republicans did clash with this president, it was over issues of you know foreign policy and national security. I mean, we saw that the most acutely with the uh, with the Helsinki summit over the summer uh, between President Trump and uh, the Russian president Vladimir Putin. Um, and they, I, I mean, they clearly held an extra level of credibility because not only were they senators who had been here for a while, but they hold those chairmanships and they theoretically have power to do something about it. But look at who is. Um, yeah. succeeding uh, both the men in their respective committees. Um, Jim Inhofe of Oklahoma, one of the most conservative members of the Senate, has already taken over as chairman of the committee. He's expected to continue should re uh, Republicans retain control. And uh, Jim Risch from Idaho, who is also you know, equally conservative and um, Foreign Relations Committee chairman, he's right, he was right behind Corker in that seat. There was some speculation whether Rubio might try to hop over Jim Risch and try to take that chairmanship, but Rubio says he's not going to do that. He's happy in his position. Um, I think it's fair to say that Senators Inhofe and Risch have been far less outspoken in their opposition uh, to the president and the president's actions. So if there is something that happens in the foreign policy realm that isn't traditional, that goes against kind of the traditions of the Republican Party, um, it'll be really interesting to see if they choose to speak out, what they do, and how that influences the rest of the party. Because you mentioned Ben Sass, he does, he does tend to be outspoken, but he actually doesn't talk directly to the press all too often on Capitol Hill. Um, Jeff Flake, very outspoken, will talk to us on almost anything, um, but he's, uh, he's gone next year. So it'll be, it, it'll just be a different dynamic and how that affects kind of the rest of the party and rest of the conference. Because as you know, McConnell also likes on certain issues to defer to his chairman and what they yeah. say. And that really, so that really matters. Who the chairman are and what they say really matters to the rest of the conference. Sure. All right, we have a question from Twitter and I'm gonna direct this to Amy because I think you're the best expert on this. Jesse from Twitter asks, what races are you watching for election night to indicate the blue wave, yes. a, or a blue puddle, or a blue, a blue puddle, <laughs> or whatever it is, a red firewall. You know, so, and let's sort of think of this. You know, we're going to at 7 p.m. Right. There's some polls that close, and we're right. going to start seeing right. the country come in. Right. What are you looking for? Um, you know, the good news this year is that there are a bevy of races in the East Coast time zone: Pennsylvania, <laughs> New Jersey. And Virginia, and those yeah. are going to. There are a bunch of races there that could tell us a lot about what kind of night it's going to be. Personally, I'm looking in Virginia, down at Richmond suburbs, Virginia seven race, which is Dave Bratt, yeah. um, up against Abigail Spanberger. This is a district that is 
pretty Republican, right? This is Eric Cantor's old district. These are traditionally conservative Republican voters. But the suburbs here have been moving in the same way that the suburbs in Northern Virginia mm -hmm. uh, have been moving, which is they trending much bluer than in the past. And if this is, uh, if the suburban tsunami does happen, uh, that is one of those <laughs> districts that you could see it. Another one would be in New Jersey with Tom MacArthur. And this is a half Philly suburb, half yeah. more New It stretches York, from the Delaware River yeah. all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It's really, um, Complicated district. That's there my voting district. Okay, so there you go. You can decide to do that, and in, and also Maine, which has one congressional Holocaust. district that we're talking about. So, where do those go now? If it's a split decision, you know, we're going to have to wait later and later and later into the night to to really appreciate it. The other thing we know is California has a bunch of races that um, are important. California, because of they have early voting, they have vote by mail. It takes them a long time to count and certify the votes. So we oh, could God. be, that is my nightmare, is we could be waiting mm. for a while to get those final votes counted and to know who actually is in charge. All right, we're going to wrap up. Candace, I'm going to put you on the spot. This is our last question. It's just a two-word answer. Mm. Who will be the Speaker of the House? <laughs> Time's up. No predictions. Right. Oh, no. no predictions. I know you guys all wanted predictions. We're really <laughs> sorry, but thank you very, very much. It's a great night. You'll be, uh, we're going to get out of here and we're going to move on to our next segment. Thank you guys Thanks, so guys. much. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.